people ask me all the time, when do you decide that you can no longer coach someone? I want to be flippant and say never because I've decided I'm going down the road with them. They've given me their trust and I'm not about to purposefully abandon that. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. J.R. Flatter here and talking about building a coaching culture and our co-host, Lucas. Hello. Just had dinner together last night. A little spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> and some 2007 wine. I don't know why 2007 <laughs> was resonating with you. but I think it, I was just commenting on, it's like, oh, look how fancy we are. <laughs> All our wine is from 2007. <laughs> and my eyes aren't bloodshot because of the wine. I've been teaching a class in Japan virtually all week. So working from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. and then at an 8 a.m. class. So laid my head on my pillow about 3.30 and got up about 7.30. So not sure why it's been coming up lately, but I've been doing a lot of talking and getting asked a lot of questions about being my authentic self and coaching towards authentic self. We do a monthly coaches coffee and conversations, and that was the topic this morning. It's a case study that I use in every class we teach. So I thought it might be appropriate just to toss that in the ring and throw it back and forth, see what your thoughts are as a millennial. Is this a part of your dialogue too? I think, yeah, it does come up. Like we've talked in the past about, you know, those intangible things that you want out of a workplace that aren't necessarily like a higher salary. Like what is it about the culture that attracts you somewhere? And I think just being able to, talk about what you want to talk about and, and dress a certain way as long as, you know, it's within within some set limits. It just makes people more comfortable. And I think like with the coaching conversation, it's all about getting that self-awareness or, you know, enhancing mm-hmm. your self-awareness. So it's, I think like the more you're coached, the more you're probably thinking about that maybe. Yeah. As we start, I think it might be worthwhile just to have a quick conversation about Ethics versus morality. I don't want to sound like too much like a professor, but there is a difference. And I think it's relevant to the conversation. So ethics belong to the organization. And so we at our company have a set of ethics, a standard of which we ask people to behave and act. Then each of us that work here have a set of morals that we bring to the, the company. And Morals is me. The M in morals is me. So I have my morality. The company has their ethics and hopefully there's not too much conflict there. And if we're going to work together, we have to say, here are some things that we agree. I think our dress code is three sentences. If you come from a policy background, I used to write policy for a living. And if you write policy, you should write absolutely as little as possible because everything you say takes freedom from somebody. So our dress code is dress appropriate to the situation, dress equal to your customer. So if they're in jeans and a t-shirt pulling cable, then yeah, jeans and t-shirt pull cable. And then third, when in doubt, use your best judgment. Core values similar, 
pursue work that excites us, put service before profit, and grow our leaders from within. And somehow that grew into this 96-page <laughs> orientation handbook. But I think there's a lot of uh, regulations that, that drive us to 96 pages beyond those three sentences, six sentences. So if you choose to align yourself to an organization, be it your swim team, your church, the company you work with, you're choosing in some sense to align your morality with the ethics of that organization. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I like that that analogy, like ethics belong to the organization and the morals, the M is for me, <laughs> I'm seeing on, on your slide presentation. And it's something, yeah, it's like when I come to the table, what am I bringing, you know, versus what's already involved in the organization? Like, I've heard you say in the past, like, if you're trying to change an organization, like, for example, the Marine Corps, it's like the Marine Corps has been here a really long time and you're just joining it. So you don't expect to necessarily like, oh, this workplace is going to reflect me perfectly. So it's kind of that push and pull that you come out into an organization with. Yeah, I, I remember that conversation like it was yesterday. It was a mentor and I was commiserating that I think I was a captain at the time in 03. And I had a doctorate and all this experience in, in organizational design. But if I would walk into a room, everybody looks at the colonel and talks to the colonel. And he said, yeah, you know, this, and at that time it was something like 225 years we've been around and we're pretty successful. So maybe it's time for you to move on. <laughs> I was like, no, what did that? That was the first time I ever thought about leaving that amazing organization. So I guess then... So we have recruiters here and they do their best to convince people to come and work with us. I hope they're telling the story and that people don't show up and think, oh, this isn't what I signed up for. As you're exploring whether you want to join an organization, I hope you're exploring, does my morality align with their ethics? And I think that list that you do make, it better be existential things and not annoying things. Like you might be annoyed by the way someone dresses or combs their hair or talks, but those aren't existential. So they don't belong in your, on your list. It's those things that you absolutely have to agree on. We're going to work hard. We're going to serve our customers, show up on time, treat each other with respect. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's like sometimes you can get into a mode where you're just like complaining about something, but it's, it's just the nature of like any organization like, oh, I have to show up on time or I have to do this or that. It's like, okay, sometimes you're looking for something that's, oh, any job is going to have these constraints. So am I complaining about this particular organization or just, you know, the... Life in general. Yeah, miserating. life in general. <laughs> <laughs> so all of this gets brought to light when you're coaching because as coaches, we coach to our leader's house we talk about the house of leadership. I'm looking at it right now. And one of the pillars is principles. And principles are pretty closely aligned to ethics and morals. I don't want to split the academic hair too fine. And so what are the principles of the leader I'm coaching? Not mine, because I've already agreed. We get together before we coach and we agree, here's the parameters of our relationship. I'm going to treat you with respect. You're going to treat me with respect. We're both going to show up, but we're going to not be distracted. And oh, by the way, you're in the driver's seat and I'm facilitating your discovery. I'm facilitating your growth. So then when their ethics disagrees with yours, 
according to the competencies of coaching, you're supposed to keep those to yourself and focus on the leader you're coaching. You ever have that as a challenge in one of your coaching sessions? I had this example where we were watching this show um, and it was all about like the history of the ancient world, right? And the whole premise is, why aren't scientists looking into this like this guy's looking into it? And I'm thinking like, well, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know if they should be looking into it, you know? But the show's aimed at the layman. So it's like, we don't necessarily have the same principles and, you know, morality as somebody in the field that's an expert. So like we're making our own judgments. Oh, it is ridiculous. The scientists don't care about this, you know, (laughs) but they have their own priorities and who knows what. Well, part of what brings us to light, and I get reminded of it every time I teach a class because it's a case study that I think demonstrates me unconsciously, perhaps. One of the topics we always talk about is unconscious bias. And um, unconscious bias isn't necessarily malicious. I mean, most often it isn't. It's our mind doing the things our mind does, making decisions and, and rationalizing. And we might not even be thinking about it. So this particular case study I'm talking about is the leader I'm working with is just saying out loud, I can't be my authentic self at work. And my unconscious bias is thinking, yeah, but you raised your right hand and you you swore an oath to do that job. You signed the dotted line. And it was probably two or three sessions in when I went, oh, wow, I'm not supposed to be doing that. (laughs) And then try to recover. What do you think? I guess it's almost like coming to a compromise where, okay, maybe to me, like this isn't something that, you know, I would consider or, you know, I've, I've considered the opposite. Like I believe something completely different. And then this person's over here. So you want to be all the way over there, but you're, you know, we're coaches and we're, you know, improving and doing training and trying to get better. But, but yeah, you're always coming from where you're coming from. So it's tough. It's a challenge, especially if it's like something that you disagree with. It got so bad at this particular case study that I'm thinking my next powerful statement, not even a powerful question is, dude, you need to vote with your feet. Because if you're this unhappy with an organization that you've decided to join and you can't be your authentic self, you feel that. And part of the conversation was, I have two sons that I'm raising and I don't think I'm setting a good example for them. That's pretty powerful if you feel that strongly. That begins that begins to become existential to the existence of your family and the pride that you would have, your sons would have in you. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. And my job is to support that and as his coach. Yeah, and even in situations where the person decides to stay in this organization, I want to be, you know, that person that's really driving change and making waves and things like that. Like maybe personally I would say like, that's not worth the effort like, just leave the organization. But maybe to them, it's like, that's worth it for them to make that difference. And to go back to this idea of unconscious bias, anytime you're leading someone in a coaching conversation or you you have a preconceived outcome of what is right and wrong, you're allowing your morality to inform your coaching. And that's completely wrong. There was a case here in the United States several years old now, but a particular bakery decided they don't want to bake cakes for a certain demographic. I would hope if you're going to coach somebody, you've had the conversation about whether you'll bake their cake or not. 
long before you get down the road and decide, wow, there's a, there's a misalignment here that I can't overcome. People ask me all the time, when do you decide that you can no longer coach someone? I want to be flippant and say never because I've decided I'm going down the road with them. They've given me their trust in the arc of the relationship and in the arc of each session. And I'm not about to purposefully abandon that. I'm sure you've had people that you've coached that were what you might call voluntold and they showed up at your doorstep to, to be coached. I started coaching session 72 hours ago. And the first sentence from this young lady was, hey, I don't even know if I want to be here. Could you just mentor me? Mm, why don't we try coaching first and see how that works out? Yeah, I guess you kind of hinted at like, okay, when would I ever not want to be in this coaching relationship? It's like, am I having to, you know, bend over backwards and really go way outside? Like you're, you're going to be outside of your comfort zone, but is there like a limit to that? And I haven't really thought about that, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. There are very few things in life I abstain from. I try to limit things well, but there's a very short list of things that I just will not do. Eating liver is one of them, right? I'll eat everything else, but I'm not going to eat liver. And when it comes to coaching, I don't know what would have to come into the coaching room for me to say, wow, we've just reached a line where I can go no further. I know before we got on the air, before we started recording, we were talking about code switching a little bit. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's a new term. I've only heard it in the last year, probably, but I'm sure for other generations, it's probably more common to talk about and understand what all that means. And I had someone describe it to me yesterday as being a chameleon for whatever situation you're in. I read a Harvard Business Review article that talks about it as adjusting your style of speech and dress and behavior to be accepted, to get the results or to have the success that you want or need. I suspect that's part of the case study. This person feels unauthentic. If pressed, they would probably say, I'm being asked to code switch. When I do behave authentically, and I'm quoting this person, I get sideways looks, comments, and I've actually even been punished for being authentic. What is your generation saying about code switching? I think there's a couple of things. Like one of them is like, yeah, like, am I being punished or criticized to the point where I feel like okay, this is a defense mechanism, or is this just my choice on how I want to operate in this group versus this group? Because you think about it like um, your group of friends versus the office, or like if I'm talking to people I don't know, maybe I don't want to sound as like academic and dry, but like if I'm talking to people I'm really comfortable with, like I don't care like if you think I sound like a nerd, you know, like I'm I'm just going to use every every word in the dictionary. Um geek out. Yeah, exactly. Personally, I I do definitely, you know, deliberately I'm not going to geek out on a topic that I know that, you know, nobody here is interested in talking about or at least my perception. So I think about the way that I'm being perceived by others and that's that's why I would choose to, you know, limit or change the language. Yeah, I know for a fact that when I'm in different audiences, I dress differently, I behave differently, and I hope I'm not being untrue to myself. I hope I'm being authentic. I could tell you for a fact, if I walk into a room full of construction professionals wearing a suit and a tie, 
I'm going to be treated very differently than if I came in in a set of work boots and a collared shirt and a pair of jeans when I'm in different audiences. So one of the the parts of unconscious bias is tribe. We make the decision when we see someone, are they in my tribe? And we measure tribes in, in many, many different ways. Generationally, we measure tribe. You're the millennial tribe. I'm the boomer tribe. Gender, ethnicity, preference, dozens and dozens of different tribes. And so I want to be part of the tribe that I want to be successful in. Yeah. There are situations where it's like, when it really gets to that, you know, sense of self and identity, like I'm being criticized for something that, you know, I, I it's not about me liking games or liking programming or something. It's just, it's, oh, where you grew up or, you know, your accent, like there's that unconscious bias that I think all of us can admit to where if you hear like a foreign accent, you almost, your first thought is like, okay, maybe they're not as intelligent as I am. And and then you got to think, oh no, they know multiple languages. Of course, mm-hmm. they're more intelligent than mm-hmm. I am. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that's a phrase I learned probably two years ago from one of our coaches, accentism. And there's so many of them, it's just impossible to count. So what's our conclusion here? I mean, I'm pretty comfortable in different tribes moving from one to the other. Yeah. Personally, I'm never like felt like I have to do it one way or another, but more so like adapting, you know, to the situation. Yeah. And for me, I think there's a voluntary nature. I suspect if we talk to this gentleman, he would consider it involuntary. I voluntarily code switch where perhaps he feels forced into it. But I know at the end of the day as a coach, I better coach to his definition of authenticity and I better coach to his feelings and emotions and and beliefs. All right, brother. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.